0: Now I spring of all our guns.
1: It's good to see everybody. I'm Tim, and welcome to Mayes Way. This is a great Sunday. I realize this is kind of a fragile season in our the life of our community. How many of you guys have some sort of exam that you've got to like take pretty soon? Uh, one, yeah, most of them are not here, but one, Brett Fox, you do have an exam. None for you. So a few people are finishing up. Uh, the rumor is our lead artist, uh, young Mark Williams, is now an official MSW. So congratulations to Mark. And, and, and Elizabeth is next on the list. We're gonna, I was going to pick on Mark first. We're going to get to Elizabeth, but it'll be all nice to her. Uh, but So Mark is willing to practice on anybody. He said just come by the house if you've got any kind of counseling needs. Uh, he'll just willing to chat most of any time, right? Yeah, yeah. And Elizabeth, congratulations to you. This is fantastic. So, uh, it, this is a, a great rite of passage. And apologies for celebrating people who are done for people who are not done. So, if you've got exams, or uh, we've got a lot of Div Schoolers here that uh, have been a part of our community this year, I know these guys are getting ready to crank it. So, anyway, uh, it's good to see everybody. A uh, Mass Way is a community. I've, I've, Many familiar faces here tonight, but this is a community of people that are committed to, in some ways, by our community life together, and certainly not because we're perfect uh, in any way, form, or fashion, but uh, to to try to embody uh, the life of Christ in this community, to follow the work of God and the redemptive work of God as a creator and a redeemer in in the life of Durham. So we see ourselves very much as followers, people who are looking for the telltale signs of God's beauty and redemption and mercy and creation and participating in that and through the difficult work of our relationships in some ways forming ourselves as a people who are deeply committed to that process in that vein, I'm going to ask Dan in a second to update us on Durham Can because that's one of the, the ways that we participate in God's work here. I also say hey to Amy and kiddos, many kiddos. That's Lucy sitting there. She's, she's, she and I had a, a RISE biscuit today, uh, the, the chorizo and something that was tasty. But uh, Amy is here at Travis. Amy was, I think almost everybody knows, Amy was a pastor here for three or four years, three years and Travis, uh, I think maybe the last time you were with us, we, were we ordaining you the last time? So tra- Travis, we have ordained. He is down working in Florida. Amy's doing pastoral work. What are you guys up to? Can you guys give a quick update? I just told Amy she was doing both the dialogue and the Eucharist, so she's she's kind of getting her head into it. So. and that on a basically a one year kind of internship training and then kind of so you guys are moving to the the next stage of both of those things yeah. And they said today at breakfast, they're praying for triplets for next year. Yes. Oh, yeah. no, That'd be just perfect.
2: Just going on uh,
1: exactly. <laughs> exactly. Well, welcome. You will get lots of hugs. You've already gotten some. We're so excited to have you guys uh, with us tonight. Um, and Jeff Crawford, who we love and has led worship in this community, um, I, I know since the previous space of five six right. years or so right. ever in the loft i don't know if you ever in the loft. so we're always glad to have you and could you introduce your uh, folks here
3: uh casey tolls probably familiar to you all on base he plays mount moriah and uh skylar goodis
1: I had a good chance to hear Skylar's vocals in the re, in the rehearsal. She's fantastic. So we're really glad to have you with us. I think it's the first time. So these guys are here to lead us. Dan, update us. I think that probably our main kind of missional update is Durham Can, which is our kind of primary local political um, uh, justice partnership.
4: So we uh, have budget, uh, a little bit more than that, um, and oversees somewhere around four, over 4,000 uh, employees, teachers, and all that kind of stuff. So, uh, And you know, in Durham, education is still struggling. Like, education is a lot of places, so resources are tight. Uh, teachers are strapped. Uh, the kids are, are
2: and catch up the
4: so there's a lot of things going on. There. So if you're looking, uh, I know this is kind of like a sneaky thing, but there's a vote coming up uh, in May, May 5th, I believe, um, and that's the school board vote. So check out your district, check out kind of those people uh, because those types of decisions mean a lot. And if you want more information, uh, connect with Durham Can via Facebook uh, on the web, and there's there's some information. Which is
1: there a, an upcoming CAN thing that we need to attend anytime soon? There, I think there, 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 there like will there. be
4: two or three meetings coming up. We just signed up for them today, and the, the dates are eluding me. But there's one coming up in May on the 22nd, I believe, yeah, which great. is a literacy council, if you're interested in kind of working I on the, that, one, okay, that's, that's on the
1: 3rd. Oh, that's on the 3rd.
4: Yeah, right. Okay, so coming up very quickly on the 3rd is a literacy, literacy council, and we signed up between 1 to 3, and so working on... Uh, reading, children reading, how to get children reading in the community. Um, if you're interested in that, please. I know Josh said that he's going to go so you can see him or me um, and we can get you the information. You, you can also check it out if you, you know, like uh, Durham Pan on Facebook. You can track
1: it there pretty easily as well. Fantastic. Well, and just a quick reminder, we've got lots of folks at the art table tonight. That's another space always for you to uh, work, create, and participate in while you're worshiping with us. I hope you're uh, always still invited to, to, to be back there. So I'm going to turn it to my buddies right here. This is my crew, my pals, uh, and this is their chance to, uh, they lead us in this portion of our worship, which is an important time. It's a, one, of the, one of the liturgies that we do. So I'm going to turn it over to you guys and let Joel uh, start us off in the liturgy.
5: Hallelujah. Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. Hallelujah. Praise the God and Father of our
6: Lord Jesus Christ.
1: He has given us new life and hope. And he has raised Jesus from the dead.
6: Hallelujah. Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. Hallelujah.
2: God has claimed us as known. He has brought us out of the darkness. He has made us light to the world.
1: Thank you guys If I'm I didn't pull this up real quick but I wanted to, to read the prayer for today for us and then we will turn it back to, uh, to Jeff and we're on the second Sunday of Easter so please pray with me. Um, Amen. I think that's very useful in terms of praying for our fellowship in the Christ body. We're actually starting a series uh, on the body, kind of the body part two. We're going to look at us as sexual bodies, look at us in terms of food and how uh, food forms us. So those are going to be a series of dialogues and dance in the lectionary tonight. But it's really an introduction to that conversation as well. So uh, thank you for the feedback that kind of got us moving in that direction. Jeff, thank you for being here as well. Thanks for having me back. It's good to be here. Um, tonight the
3: songs are dealing with um, kind of what does it mean to believe in a, in a post-resurrection life and, um, you know, wrestling with that belief in all kinds of different ways. Um, this first song was written by Woody Guthrie, at least the lyrics were, and they were uh, completed and put to music by Jeff Tweedy after uh, Woody Guthrie died. The second one's by a band called the Followers.
0: Are your garments all spotless? Are they white? Are you- Have you learned to love your neighbors of all colors, creeds, and kinds? Are you washed in the blood of the land? I have learned to love my peoples of all colors, creeds, and kinds. I'm all washed.
4: So many people outdressed me last week for Easter that I felt like, "Hey, I'm really going to show him up this week." And uh, I don't know. I came from a Durham Can meeting. I don't normally dress like this. I threatened him to wear my tie and jacket and pull the pulpit out here and really kind of hammer away at a sermon. But he said that might not be the best thing to do. So we decided not to do that tonight. Anyway, uh, it's great to have all of you with us, and it's great to be here. Jeff, thanks so much for that. For those of you that uh, I know. It's a lot of regulars tonight. It's post-Easter. They always call it Easter Sunday. I always call this kind of the down day in the church because it's like you know, everybody comes out for Easter, and then after that, everybody goes to the beach. You know, It's like, hey, exhaustion. Um, and with exams going on and all that kind of stuff as well, that's more, more to it. But one of the things that we try to do with our music um, is to really craft it into the liturgy of our service, so that the, the music that we're singing, some of them will be songs that uh, not everybody's familiar with, things that you might not have heard before, but the lyrics and, and even the tonalities a lot of times are crafted in such a way to kind of fit with where we're going with our conversation, or at least, uh, even if they don't track immediately with the conversation, to offer you kind of uh, little avenues to track off of the passage and to think about. And, and uh, the way that we've done that through songs of preparation is, I think uh, Jeff and, and others have introduced us to the themes of, you know, what does it mean to enter into this life of the lamb, right? What does it mean to kind of be in this, this a creature that you normally wouldn't choose as your power animal, you know, a lamb? What, 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 is, what is that exactly? Um, and that's kind of positioned before us uh, tonight. And then this last song about kind of being overwhelmed, um, we're going to talk about themes, obviously. We're in Easter, so we're going to talk about themes of resurrection. Um, and and then we're going to get to themes of like what does resurrection mean for our bodies? Um, and what does it mean to live uh, as embodied lives kind of looking toward resurrection? And in some sense, already experiencing it. So uh, that sense of kind of being overwhelmed, uh, I think, gives us some key ways to think about that. Um, but this time, as, as our normal custom, I want to invite you to stand up, greet one another, pass the peace of Christ, uh, to one another, say hello. If you're around somebody you don't know, please uh, introduce yourself. And let uh, uh, You're invited to grab some snacks. There's some great snacks. There's also coffee and water uh, if you'd like to grab some of that. And I'll call us back in just a minute. All right, everybody. So we're going to gather back in. As we're doing that, I mean... Uh, I'm going to give you guys a little bit of an update. I know at this time of year, we're we're we are still in Easter. Easter is a season that stretches over uh, the course of several weeks as we build uh, and kind of celebrate the season and move toward Pentecost, uh, and then after Pentecost we move back into ordinary time. Um, but I know during this time of year, especially kind of, uh, there's a sense in which uh, the celebration of Easter can can. Can get caught up or trapped or kind of overwhelmed or taken over by all the transitions that begin to happen. You know, a lot of times in spring, especially in this community, there are a ton of transitions. Uh, people moving out of town, finishing up school or finishing up semesters, a lot of transitions in work, you know, uh, depending on where you are, a lot of people tend to be moving and different things like that. And so uh to me, it seems like and this is kind of pressing on me because my family and I, I know Tim, I think, mentioned this a couple weeks ago, are in the middle of a transition and uh, are moving to Chicago uh, uh, for my job uh, starting in July. And so we're uh, moving through that, that sense of, like, packing up our house, which is one of the worst things. I mean, it is amazing. Packing a house is, like, crazy. You, you, there's a side of me that wants to throw everything we own away, Uh, and just start from scratch, and then there's another side that's like, wow, that actually would cost a lot of money, so let's try to save some of this stuff around here type of thing. Uh, But there's a sense in which kind of, I think on Sundays you can come in and say, oh, great, Easter, yeah, ha, ha, and then on the week you move back into kind of the routine and the kind of things that are going on, and um, certainly that's been the case for us, and we are, uh, I I think later on, as May goes on, I'll talk more about kind of our transition and where we are. uh, we'll have more formal time to say goodbye but uh, it's just been pressing on me this week how much uh, Elizabeth and I both love, both love this community and the people here, the people that uh, you know, I started, dri- I was driving into Durham, uh, I think it was for a pub group on Thursday and it was such a great night uh, and I had the windows open and I was looking at the city as I was coming in on 147 I was like, man I'm going to really, really miss this this city and this area and just, I've spent 15 years here now and, and uh, so many of you, we know from years and years of either doing ministry together or being in church together, being on lead teams together, different things like that, that uh, there are a lot of kind of relationships that are deeply invested that we're sorely going to miss. Um, we're excited for the future, uh, and I know Amy and Travis and all other folks that have moved from this congregation onto to other places can, can attest. Uh, it, you're excited, but you're also very sad in some ways. Uh, looking at that. So um, like I said, we'll do more formal kind of goodbyes, but I thought during this time of Easter, uh, and we're still celebrating Easter, that's often such a time where uh, the celebration point of this, you know, without Easter in our calendar and the Christian story, the whole thing doesn't really make sense. Um, I think those of you that love N.T. Wright, you'll hear him talk about a lot of times how, you know, Christmas, Christians make a big deal about Christmas, and you know, it is a big deal to some extent, but but really, if you take out the Easter story, you, you really you've lost the whole thing. And I think uh, because we have so many transitions going on, it feels like that. It, uh, we're not doing that as a church, but sometimes it can feel like that. that. Oh, hey, we had that day, and then now it's back to the rut and grind of everything. So, sense of Easter and celebration and enjoying it, I, I think, is what I'm trying to somehow embody and think about in my mind. But maybe y'all can help us do that, uh, even as we get ready to move and move on. So tonight, uh, we're going to look at a passage from John. Uh, If you have your liturgy list with you, there's a passage on the back, John 20, 19 through 31. Um, This is going to be a familiar passage to some of you. Um, It's this passage about the doubting Thomas. Um, And I didn't pick anybody to read it beforehand, so if somebody would read this for us, uh, we'll go ahead and get started. Um, any, Any volunteers.
7: if you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven, they are forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. But Thomas, who was called for the twin, one of the twelve, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see the mark of the nails in his hands, and put my finger in the mark of the nail and my hand in his side. I will not believe. A week later, his disciples were again in the house, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were shut, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said, Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands. Reach out your hand and put it in my side. Do not doubt, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God, Jesus said to Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have come to believe. Now Jesus did many other signs in in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may come to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God,
4: and that through believing, you may have life in his name. Thanks, Steve. So for almost two months now, um, if you've watched any news whatsoever, and, and it's, it's hard to lose track of the story because CNN scoops it every day, they re-scoop what they had the day before and tell you that wasn't right and then re-scoop it as breaking news literally five minutes later, then you, are, you, you realize that the world is searching for an airplane. Uh, It's hard to believe that in a world where if you get on Google Earth, you can look at your backyard and and seriously scare yourself to death about what is visible on the internet, that that the world could lose a jetliner, could completely lose a jetliner. If you're not familiar with the story, a Malaysian airline, uh, I think it was Flight 370, left uh, from Kuala Lumpur, headed toward Beijing on March 8th. And apparently about an hour into its flight, it took a sharp left turn, and literally that's pretty much all we know. Uh, Nobody, at least anybody that I know or they're holding on to the information or something, nobody in the world really knows what happened to this airplane. Now you can imagine for the families and for the people whose friends were on that flight how devastating and how terrible a situation this must be. I mean, think about – it's an odd thing to have a whole airline or or, or a loved one just kind of disappear. I mean, searching for these, you're look – I'm listening to these stories and reading these stories of people, and they're saying some of them are holding on to hope that, you know, hey, maybe it just got hijacked. just got hijacked. Maybe it got hijacked, and and it landed somewhere, and maybe they're still alive. Maybe Maybe there's the possibility that this person that I care so much about, maybe they're still somewhere. Others are saying, well, that's probably not likely, but at least you can give us some answers. What we're searching for more than anything is answers. They want some shred of evidence, some kind of trail that will lead them to these people that they loved. And in some sense, finding the people, even if they're deceased... Gives them a chance to say goodbye. It offers at least the beginning of whether it be some answers or trying to make sense out of this whole thing that's going on. Say goodbye or to have a little bit of closure. You can imagine how deeply troubling that situation must be. And I think as we look at our passage uh, or those around the resurrection of Jesus, something similar is happening, although in reverse. You see, the disciples and the people who watched Jesus die on the cross thought they had the body, right? They prepared it, they took it down, they stuck it in a tomb, they knew exactly where it was. They were even going to have a chance to go and commemorate, remember Jesus' life, celebrate him as a human being, say goodbye to him by you know, dressing the body further, making sure that all the proper rituals are followed. But the body is now missing, the body's gone. In a reverse of that type of situation, having had the body, it's now gone missing. Someone's obviously kind of tampering with the evidence. And it seems that there are stories that that are starting to emerge, kind of weird stories, that are circulating from the women who went to the tomb that he might be alive somewhere. And those stories are cultivating and giving rise to doubt, fear, but also hope. See, our passage today picks up on the back side of the crucifixion. Jesus has been raised from the dead, but the disciples to this point don't really know that he's alive. They're not really fully aware of what that means. They're still in disbelief and shock. I mean, it's kind of like the sense of, hey, you know, the cause has died. The campaign is over. They put the body in the grave, Right. The revolution we thought was going to happen did not come. The victory that was so close has been snatched away. And they literally locked themselves in a room in their fear and in doubt and in their despair. Because they're looking at what happened to Jesus and thinking, oh crap, that's probably just about... Something that's going to happen to us. The followers of a person, a political criminal and someone who's killed, typically end up pretty much like the person they were following. But it's at this point that Jesus appears. He appears in their midst. And he stands there saying, Peace, bro." I can't help but read this story without it being like some kind of hippie ghost Jesus popping up into the mix and saying, Hey, dudes, so what's happening? I mean, it's such a, it's such a remarkable passage that we find ourselves reading here. He, he, he comes in and says basically, Boo! Coming into a locked room where people are scared to death and utters this word, peace to you. You know, if I'm sitting there around the table, I'm thinking... Come on, man. Is there a plan? Is there some type of hey? We've got a second chance here. I you, we thought you were dead. You're coming back in some way. We're going to recover the kingdom. You're going to hey. What, what's, the, what, what's the what are the tactics? What's the strategy? So for me, as I begin to read this passage, and it wasn't always like this, but it's easy for me to think or to understand why Thomas doubted this. I mean, imagine yourself with a group of friends, right? Who are giving you a similar story? At first, you you probably just think it's a poorly timed prank. Look, hey, you know, this is not, you know, telling stories about somebody being alive who was dead, a dear friend. That's just bad, bad comedy, right? You just don't do that kind of thing. And then you start to think, well, were you guys tipping a few back the night before? Was there something else being passed around? Like, this is some kind of group hallucination going on here, right? In some sense, I'm in the out, and everybody's talking about this story because I missed out on, you know, a despair party where everybody got trashed, and you you obviously had some collective experience. And then I would imagine after that, it really starts to get annoying as they talk about this story, because if you thought a dead a dead Jesus was dangerous, stories about an alive Jesus about. This insurrectionist kind of coming back and being alive are pretty certainly going to get you killed. And I, for one, would be thinking, hey, look, I'm not putting my life on the line or anybody else's life on the line for some goofy story that you guys are telling about somebody appearing in your midst after he obviously was crucified by the Romans. It's easy for me, I think, to understand, hey... I know why Thomas was a doubter. In my sense, Thomas is not a doubter. Thomas is the reasonable person in our passage today. In some sense, he's the one who is the rationalist, the one who takes the obvious points and understands them and makes sense of them and says, look, guys, I'm not going to believe this hoax I'm not going to believe fuzzy voices from the sky. I'm not going to believe, you know, uh, little experiences of, of some type of spiritual adventure. Until I can touch, I can put my fingers into the sores on his hands and my hand into his side. Until I can have something concrete, I am not believing it. This is horse crap. So let me throw this back to you real quick. How do you view Thomas in this passage? Do you resonate with Thomas? Do you not resonate with Thomas? How have you heard it in the past? Do you tend to sympathize with him, or do you think he's just being stubborn? Or, I don't know. Maybe you want to give us your own rendition. I've kind of, you know riff on my rendition of this story that we've had. Maybe you want to give us your own rendition of the story here. How do you see Thomas? Yeah, I, I mean, he is, he's a sadomasochist, I don't know, he, you know, in the sense of why would you want to, you know, hey, you know, well just touch an arm or something, you don't need to dig into the vital organs anywhere, yeah. I, I don't know.
8: precisely because he wants to believe, precisely because he believed so firmly before, he's my reading, and because he was so hurt. And I think that that saying, I want to touch the wounds, is because he wants to say, I want to, to participate and, and, and acknowledge both that Jesus' death is real, and that my pain, and the disappointment of what happened is real. And so, for me, it's a people in the church are very really quick to dismiss other people's faith. Somebody does something um, really unusual you know, like to somebody else, and certainly some churches it not church, belong to.
4: Oh, he must be a different church. Well, yeah, that's. Um, yeah. And, and so, and particularly when there's been disappointment, particularly when there's been something within the church itself, disappointment in the church. Which is bad. Yeah, Thomas's Thomas's reply would have to. It seems so odd in, a, in, in our cultural context where we are just overwhelmed with, hey, you know, stories of, especially in Christianity and, and in other faiths as well, of, hey, give me the glory stories, right? I want to hear the victory stories. I want to hear the stories about how you, you know, you sowed whatever it was, $10, and you got $10 million back. I want that story. Uh, I want, but Thomas says, I want the scars. Give me give me the wounds. I want to see the wounds, right? That's a very, it's very counterintuitive for us a lot. Yeah, no. yeah, there's a way in which the resurrected Jesus... I had a conversation with a, a woman at our PMO, uh, Parents Morning Out, for those of you that uh, are not initiated into the club of how do I get away from my child for a few minutes in order to survive the rest of the day. Um, uh, I had a conversation with... And it was this... You know, she's... Wonderful woman, you know, and and, uh, it started out by me walking down the halls and another friend of mine saying, hey, there's Dan. He knows a lot about Jesus, and I always know crap. (laughs) One of these conversations, oh, God. Um, And and she said, okay, so this is probably going to offend you, you know, but she started asking, you know, I I like the whole Christianity thing. I get the whole, you know, spiritual – I really like the, you know, the love and all that kind of stuff. He's like, but my problem is kind of Jesus, I was like, oh, uh, okay. Well, yeah, that's that's great. I'm, first of all, I'm completely offended. So uh, no, but but her articulating, yeah. I mean, this this whole kind of incarnation thing, and then certainly there's a way in which the resurrected Jesus is a really tough problem, right? The, the Jesus who wants to be our buddy, Jesus who wants to kind of help us along, or kind of you know be a spiritual figure that in some sense we can look to. That's that's you know. That's easier to deal with, or even the Jesus who, hey, you know, in strict conservative circles, who like paid the penalty. All, all Jesus did was come and take God's wrath, so I didn't have to. Thank you, God. That's easier to deal with than a, a, a concrete body, a, a walking around living individual who is now teaching and, and proclaiming in some sense. And I, I think that that's—he's calling us back in some sense to this deep problem. Yeah.
8: There is a, a, a person place in that story that allows us to kind of place ourselves in there with it, and I'm not thinking of a television the series show. Up.
4: I think there's, you know, I mean, in reading it, and you know, you know, every time you preach a sermon or you're thinking about a sermon, you start reading blogs, and people are writing all kind of crazy stuff. Um, and, and in some ways, you know, I think what you're saying, Jim, is 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 dead on in the in the sense of like. Doubt and kind of this sense of, uh, of struggling with this reality has a deep history in the church. And I think sometimes people will write it up as, well, Thomas really on the scale of disciples is somewhere down here. And everybody who's a real disciple is really up here and Thomas is somewhere. But I think there's a way in which Thomas actually allows us a position in the story, right? Uh, Th- Thomas allows us to voice those questions, to say, a lot of times I feel like this is kind of just gobbledygook. And I'm not exactly sure that I want to stake my life on it, but I'll I'll continue to kind of stick around. But I really would like to see some, some, some concrete reality to it. Yeah, Gail? actually hoping, as a physician, you can explain it to us. <laughs> no, this is this is one of the points we're going to come back to. You are on page three or four or five of the sermon. This is one of the things where yeah, there's a, there's a there's a lot of question and it's very muddled here. I mean, uh, I referred earlier to those of you. I know there's a core group of people or some of you that have read uh, N.T. Wright's uh, writing on the resurrection, Surprised by Hope, and this is one of the questions that he engages in some sense of like. You know, we, we see our author here struggling to articulate the way in which, you know, they, the people were familiar with ghosts, they were familiar with apparitions, they were familiar with the sense of like, hey, you know, grandma's looking down on us right now, you know, she's passed, but she's still with us. So they were familiar with all that, and our authors are struggling here. They're not saying that. They're not saying it's just, they're saying it's a bodily presence, but in some way, it, it is a body that has overcome death. And we don't know how to talk about a body that way because all of ours are mortal, right? Uh, so, so we find the author struggling in that way. And, and, and in some sense, I think you know, it's, we live in a culture a lot of times where things are so abstract. I mean, you know, I can imagine somebody who's 90 you know, going to the internet and, and, and saying, okay, I'm going to take my whole retirement and there's a bank account here somewhere. That, that exists behind this thing at some point, and, and all, everything that I've worked my whole life to earn and save is, is accessible through writing a code in here, and it, that, that we live in an abstract world where we kind of take abstraction for granted, um, but there's, there's a sense here that, that a real tactile, kind of physical presence is being described in a way that, that presses against that type of ext- abstraction. Any other thoughts? Steve?
7: I think of UFOs, um you know, if, if any of you believe in aliens, you no offense, but, you know, you pretty much have to be pretty nuts to believe. You know, I, I, I love studying the, the topic, and I've looked at tons and tons and tons of videos and photos and stuff, but I haven't seen, a think, a single one that, like, looks like it could be explained as, you know, a spaceship coming down from, you know, space. And, you know, all of them look, all of them, to me, look like they're either Photoshop or, you know, some kind of composite image or, you know, just some... You know, swamp ass You know, some some trick of light or something. Um, you know, I, I wonder if Thomas was like, you know, oh come on guys, this isn't just some some you know like UFO out there. You know, you got to you got to show me the physical evidence. You know, I, I feel like that about UFOs. I would love for you to to land in my backyard and the alien come out and shake my hand and get back on the ship and fly away, because then I could say for sure, yes, they exist. <laughs> yeah, but you know. Thomas, Thomas had that with the holes in the hands and sides. So that's
4: what I think about it. Yeah, there's a way in which I mean it does kind of it, it, it challenges all our normal categories for where to put what's being described here. Uh, and, and I think in something that's that's something that we're just going to have to sit in for a little bit. And I think it's actually a good place to be because it, it challenges us as Christians to continue to think about this. Yeah? Just,
8: um, one of the
4: No, I mean, I think that we'll we'll get to this in a second. or Maybe we'll just talk about it. I mean, there's there's a way in which Christianity, historically, or at least you know in certain, sometimes does buy into a narrative of you know I'll fly away, like you know the body is kind of something that we look to kind of shed, get rid of, and then the soul kind of evaporates and escapes. But it's very clear early on uh, in the church and and the way that they were struggling to articulate it here that that's not Christianity. That Christianity is about God, God's recreation of a real world. A world in some sense that that, uh, is not disconnected from this world that we inhabit. That is not disconnected from uh, the bodies that we inhabit and the people that we are and the the friendships that we have. um, But also one that is not trapped or held captive by death in the same way. Um, and, And trying to describe that reality you know, different people writing different ways, describe it as the New Jerusalem or recreation or something like that. But it's very clear that Christianity is not a kind of religion or faith built around I'm going to try to escape reality or I'm going to try to escape the body. But it's that somehow we're recreated, that we are remade. And and, uh, and so maybe it's kind of good to move on into this at this point. Um, Some of you will be familiar that uh, in in 1973 – Augusto Pinochet in Chile uh, led a coup that took over the government. Uh, it was a military coup that took over the government. And in doing so, he installed a, a, a structural government of people uh, who lived and breathed and functioned on torture. It was a totalitarian regime that, that ordered society and did what it wanted to based upon... Uh, the simple process of keeping people trapped in fear and anxiety. And the way that they did that, uh, one of the, my favorite theologians, Bill Cavanaugh, has written on this quite a bit. Uh, and they, the way that they did that was they disappeared bodies. They had realized that, you know... It, it, and this is very similar to something that we, did, uh, we do with terrorists in some sense. We don't want people gathering around the shrine of where a body might be laid. We don't want people forming a, a kind of – or seeing a body as resistance to the state or to the regime because it can become that. And so the way that they maintained their control over things was to randomly just kind of disappear bodies. That people whose loved ones might have been walking down the street, left to go get groceries, but disappeared. I'm sure you might be familiar with this from South Africa. uh, Who who left to just get groceries and never came back. And we don't know the story. We don't know where they are. We don't know who they're with. We don't know where the body is. Sometimes bodies that were found were made to where they could not be identified. That in some sense, that captive fear held life static. But that a presence of a body somehow allows People to move on, or, to, or at least to kind of set a cause. And what I think is very clear from our passage here while, while the resurrected Messiah, the resurrected Jesus, is deeply, it, it can be troubling, it can be hard to deal with. Uh, we don't understand it completely. The physical resurrected presence of Christ is absolutely, in, in some ways, reverse to what torture did. It's absolutely essential to the life of the church. Jesus breathes on the disciples. I mean, for John, this is the story of the beginning of the church, that Jesus breathes on them. His concrete presence there fills them with power to go on and become the people of God. And I think it's interesting that Jesus resurrected here. We've already talked about one of these quite a bit, but he bears two things, at least in this passage. There's probably more that we could talk about, but in this passage, there are two things present that the resurrected Christ bears. One are the wounds that we've talked about. The wounds being still present. But he also bears this message of peace. He says it like three times in the passage. So i want to throw that back to you, and I want you to think for a second about, with the resurrected Christ, how do wounds and peace come together? How do they fit together in the Christian life? If this is the story where the beginning of the church happens, how do wounds and peacefulness fit together for us as a church? What might it mean to have them here together? Yeah, I think there's something, there's something, if, if, if the resurrected Christ presents us with an image of where creation is moving, then the marks in some sense give to us the path, maybe. That, that in some sense, this, this is how things move forward. Maybe, maybe they are the scars of living love in a violent world. Uh Anybody else?
5: Some of us like the medical profession, or or guys like Brad who traps. there's a way in which that
4: we're all f- fragilely dependent upon the people who tell us the stories uh, in, in some sense that, you know, none of us is privileged our own individual revelation necessarily, but as a, as a community of people that live and see Christ in one another, that that is some sense, and, and trusting that that has been the case historically, uh, how that's how we got here as a people. Um, and I also think there's something interesting, you know, I, I think we have to be careful in the sense of, like, talking about suffering in a way that doesn't, make this this crude mathematical equation of every, you know, episode of suffering will be meaningful and it all is there for a purpose type of thing. Because uh, I think in some sense, you know, we, we do find Jesus with Jesus' wounds. And I'm just going to venture this as a guess. We do find Jesus with Jesus's wounds, but Jesus doesn't have absolutely every wound that, that ever would have been suffered in his life, I, I, I think. I don't know. The ones that are there and are, have meaning are the ones that were earned by God graciously living in love toward people who are trying to do God-violence. In some sense, those have the meaning of creating the future in a different way. So I think in understanding suffering, and maybe this is going to be one of the things that we talk about in our body series, about suffering bodies and, uh, and different things, of, of, of recognizing that there are some episodes of suffering, some aspect of suffering and of evil that is completely meaningless. There is no meaning in it whatsoever, uh, and that's part of the existence that we live but then there is something moving toward redemption that also might take us through certain forms of suffering. Well,
9: I was just thinking in that same line, like, you know, you see this powerful movement of making things right that were set wrong, that were wrong, right? Mm-hmm. Setting things right is kind of, you know, Old Testament shalom. Mm-hmm. But it can be taken to this extreme to say, okay, things have to be like an utter chaos and suffering has to be an extreme for Christ to really, for Jesus to really move. And I think you're, like you said, Dan, that's dangerous says to somebody who's, you know, that somebody's problem really isn't enough for Jesus', you know, redemption and restoration to fully, you know, be at work. That it has to be like brought down to the, the very bottom to, to be raised up. And so I think, like I said, we have to be careful to not say only that, you know Christ's resurrection only moves through the deepest, darkest wounds. <laughs> but that, you know, no, there's power because it has, that doesn't mean that doesn't enter at all levels of suffering, at all levels of pain,
4: at all levels of both. Yeah, the peace that's mentioned here, I mean, this is the odd kind of uh, wedding that we have here between these two uh, themes, is that the peace is a real reign. It is a real content of the peacefulness of God is present because the Messiah has victoried over death and that this is where we are. That there is a victory narrative here as well and things have been set right. But the path to that is still present as well. Any other thoughts real quickly? I think about um, I, ha- I have a lot of friends
7: who are vehemently, vehemently uh, whatever that word is, against uh, my belief in Christianity and and um, they talk about science and they say well science says it's not possible that none of this could ever happen you know, this is all just stories um, but um, this, this thing that's going through my head that's Always, to interesting about this this idea is that, well, I have this belief in you know in this. They have a belief in science because, um, you know, with science, um, you know, you can do some of the, the the experiments and some of the you know some of those things, but you can't do all of them. Um, you know, for, for one person to do all of the experiments that to prove all of the science that you know from day one to now, uh, and of take forever. And so we have to believe that, well, some guy somewhere was correct when he did his experiments, and, and um, we have to trust and believe that, that he is telling the truth, that his findings are correct and accurate. Um, so I kind of wonder if maybe there's some there's there's some of that. You know, I, I believe this stuff, um, but I have to have faith in
4: yeah, and I think there's a way in which that 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 it's not just a kind of, hey, you know, some random lecturer comes in and gives you a lecture on some things that you're supposed to believe are true, but that there is a way of living in a community that embodies it uh, in such a way that the content is also present. I think this isn't what Thomas is asking for. I want to see the concrete reality. Um, so let me throw this to you kind of as a closing question. When we were talking about this passage and I stupidly volunteered to preach this week for the beginning of a body series while we're looking at Doubting Thomas, I was perplexed at how do you start a series on the body out of this passage? So I want to throw that to you. If you were going to talk about bodies and what it means to be Christian in a body, to be an embodied Christian, where do you think this passage would begin to point you or how would it lead you?
6: of, you know, Jesus having these wounds, but making, like, God God inhabiting that, God inhabiting the body, like, makes it good again. Mm-hmm. Um, and how, we mm-hmm. were mm-hmm. talking about disability, and how, like, I asked Matt, like, well, how would, do you see yourself in heaven? Yeah. You know, like, what does resurrection kind of mean in that for your body? And, you know, and he's kind of like, I, this is who I am. Yeah. Like, and so I see it in that sense, like, God also makes, God inhabits that space yep. and, and, cre- and brings goodness to something that is in in nor- like normalcy to something like format like other people would not really project onto that, and connected that to the, like that life in the church, like God, like you know, I think I was talking about some and like this doubt. Of that kind of brokenness rather than having that
4: be this barrier to them? Yeah, I think one of the things that's very vivid here is that God is not scared of bodies. God does not think bodies are not, in some sense, part of the created order. They they are a very real part of the created order, and God's not a. Some of you have had that experience if you've sat in an awkward maybe in Catholic school or in youth group, that horrible sex ed discussion where the youth minister or whoever's trying to talk about sex but in a way that can mention or try to to make you never think about sex at all while we're having the discussion. And it ends up being just this circular, horrible discussion that is not helpful at all because behind that is hidden this idea that, wow, bodies are things we have to be scared of. And I think that's deep in Christianity. And I think one thing that pulls out This passage points us to is that God is not scared of body, that our future will be an embodied future. That we will be moving in the same way that Christ did. Any other thoughts? How would you talk about bodies based on this passage? Where would it lead you to go? powerful mediums, aren't they? In some sense, like what makes torture work, what makes our reality work is that in some sense our bodies are powerful mediums. We know that if certain powers are pressed in certain places, we will die. And death is a powerful thing. But in some sense, what we find here, I think, in the way that these these disciples begin to move is that Christ's victory over death frees them to live differently. doesn't mean that they're no longer scared of the unknowns of death, but it it frees them to live quite differently, and in some sense their bodies begin to evidence the same reality that Jesus embodied. That that content of the kingdom starts to begin to form itself and to become present upon their bodies. Some of them will go on to become martyrs. Others will move out into different missionary ventures in different ways, and I think for us as a community, there's a way in which that That points us, I think, to where we might begin to go. Is how, as people gathered around a resurrection, do we begin to evidence that in our world? How do we in our bodies begin to evidence the fact that love has conquered violence? The fact that God's future is an embodied future. That this world, this reality matters. That our physical reality matters. That our relationships matter. I think as we go on in this series, and I'm going to, we're not going to wrap it up tonight. I think as an introduction, it gets us thinking in the way that to be resurrected is not to be disembodied. To be Christian is not to think that our future is somehow, you know, a, a whole group of spirits gathered around some golden area playing harps and bored to death for the rest of eternity. That's not exactly the description that we find here. That physical realities will be the future of us as a community, and how we begin to evidence that is in some sense the challenge that we're going to wrestle with as we talk about the body through the next couple weeks. So I'm going to ask Jeff and uh, Skyler and Skylar, Is that right?: Yes Skylar, and give Casey. Casey to come up again. And and to lead us into confession and absolution. And as we do that, we're going to move in this liturgy further of participation, of learning how to be people who evidence that reality of God's love. Even in a world that still, in some sense, is infatuated with death and structured around mortality and fear of death or power that results from death. So thank you guys.
3: Dan said we're moving into a time of confession and absolution, and these two songs are are pretty similar in what they're saying. They're kind of dealing with this meeting point of the wounds, or or the doubt, or the fear, (laughs) and the peace. The first one is, you know, the verses are kind of dealing with the mess, and then the, the choruses and refrain is dealing with the peace. And then the uh, the second one's a, a retune of a hymn, and it's basically a man talking to himself about what's the matter with me. So, you'll enjoy them, sing along.
10: Spirit will be strong and mighty for courage through the night until dawn. Now, lift my eyes to the
2: hills.
10: Where comes my
0: Saving.
1: where Jesus looks at his disciples. It's a few days before he's going to die. And he says, this is my body. And then he says, this is my blood, speaking about the bread and the cup. And at that point, he made it really clear that the invitation of faith was an invitation. The invitation to follow was an invitation into the narrative of his body. And in just a few moments, you guys are going to take that bread back there and the wine and juice and you're going to break it and hand it to each other and say, this is the body of Christ or this is the blood of Christ. And in doing so, you are receiving that story as your own story. You're placing yourself in this community, in our lives and all that we do in the narrative of Jesus's body. I know Brandon is back with the kiddos tonight, but I was listening to one of his colleagues the other night on NPR, uh, Bart Ehrman, who's one of the most famous professors at, uh, at UNC. And they were asking him about, um, and you're going to have to answer this question maybe a little more cryptically since the kids are in the room, <laughs> but, but uh, he was talking about one of the most implausible things possible. Uh, about the the death of Jesus Christ. So how many of you guys are watching Game of Thrones? This is where the code language comes in. Raise your hand if you're watching Game of Thrones. Okay, so Prince Daniel Chase or King Daniel Chase defeats the people on that side of the room. What is he going to do to their bodies? (laughs) Think of that. Maybe not say it so loud, but it's not going to be pretty. And so uh, Brandon's colleague was making this point that um, it was absolutely amazing that it may be implausible that they would put Jesus in a tomb, right? Because what would you rather do to an enemy of the state? You'd rather put him in a position where no one would imagine that it would be a good idea to rebel against Rome Pilate Caesar, any of those things, and so you know, in some ways there's a way to read the story to say the Christians had a moral victory they could have had it could have been okay that their their leader, though killed by the state. Was stuck in a tomb. And so, at least it's a place you can come back and say, He was such a good guy. And I remember the story he told. And you remember when we were hungry and he made all that food appear. And I don't know if I believe that, but I did eat some food. You know, it, it could have been that way. But we're left with this story that's far more bizarre than that is that Jesus. Appears as a resurrected body, not even a moral victory to us, a body that is real to us. And for us, our worship is oriented entirely around that body. The text that Dan referenced tonight, Torture and Eucharist by Kavanaugh, is a great book. I actually wrote about it in my comps. Wonderful book. And think of the parallel torture disappears bodies. It makes them invisible to other people. It makes body life invisible. If we were in a torturing world, we'd all stay inside. We wouldn't see each other's bodies. We'd be afraid to go get that gallon of milk. Because who knows what might happen to us. And what does Eucharist do? It does just the opposite. It makes bodies visible. When you go to the table tonight, you are making the body of Christ visible Not just in your life, but in this community. We're celebrating that that resurrected body, which we don't fully understand, is the center of our life as a community. It's the center of not just the story of Christian faith, but the center of our fellowship. It's indeed what holds us together. And it's what gives us hope. So I invite you now to the table with the reminder that at Emmaus Way, it's always an open table. That means everyone in the room is invited to partake. And in doing so, we're celebrating not only this story, but our hope in the resurrection of Christ. So I invite you now to the table to break bread and to pour wine and juice for each other and speak those words. Embrace each other as well.